This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear my conversation with Lance Fritz, Chairman, President, CEO of The Storied, Union Pacific Railroad. Union Pacific was one of the rail lines that was joined together back in 1869, exactly 150 years ago, with the Golden Spike, a 17-carat hunk of metal that marked the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. You could go across the country on rail instead of having to go around South America on a ship and cross lands where often you're felled by disease. Now, the American railroad industry today has done great things since deregulation of the 1980s, but where does it go from here? Will there be more government regulation? How will it be affected by the trade wars? We'll discuss these topics and more, including cutting-edge technologies that will transform what we think of the traditional railroad. But now, what's ahead? This Wednesday, we'll get the weekly petroleum status report. There have been inventory buildups. Nonetheless, the oil price hasn't gone down as much as people thought, so that number will be greatly anticipated. The following day, we'll get the weekly natural gas storage report. Natural gas prices have been under pressure. Will inventories mean we'll have less pressure in the future? Also on Wednesday, when we get the oil report, we'll also get the Consumer Price Index report. Is inflation rearing its ugly head or are prices staying fairly level? On the day that we get the natural gas report, we'll also hear about Unemployment Insurance Weekly Claims Report, what they call initial claims. If the economy is truly weakening, you'll start to see this number rise a bit. So far, it has held steady. Overseas, we've discussed, Britain's going to have an election on December 12th. It's going to be about Brexit. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson must also discuss his vision of what he sees for Britain post-Brexit. If he just focuses on Brexit, he could get up in an election where people want to look beyond Brexit, what lies in store for the United Kingdom. In Chile, still hit with massive riots, the president, ostensibly a conservative, is capitulating, and we'll see what happens to the free enterprise environment that enabled Chile to become the richest country in Latin America. Will those safeguards, those institutional safeguards, be undermined? Stay tuned, because if Chile goes in the wrong direction, that's going to ultimately be bad news for the United States. What happens in Latin America does have an impact on us. And by the way, those who complain that Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote, well, just look to the North. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau won re-election, even though his party had fewer votes than the progressive conservative opposition. And now, my conversation with Lance Fritz. Our special guest today is Lance Fritz. He's chairman, president, CEO of the Union Pacific Railroad, the largest in North America a storied American company. 150 years ago, for example, we had the U.S. truly being united. Promontory Utah, the Golden Spike, uniting the East Coast and West Coast by rail, the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Union Pacific was right there doing it. Today, the industry is still critical, and it's made amazing progress in the last 40 years. What people don't realize is the United States today is the premier freight railroad industry in the world. We're the most efficient. And Lance Fritz is right in the middle of it. 
And why don't we get into Lance first, your background. First, uh, thank you, Lance, for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to join you. So first, your background. You got a degree in mechanical engineering at Bucknell. You met your wife there at Bucknell. She was also majoring in mechanical engineering. Then you went to various industries, a consumer product supplier, electronic components and tools company, a stint at General Electric. So how did you get to Union Pacific and into railroading? It's, it's like every professional journey, Steve, where, you know, you start out as a young person and you think you've got a straight line plan and it ends up being more like a journey through the woods. Uh, it's for me, I, uh, as you pointed out, I'd started at General Electric, learned how to manage operations in a, and factory environments. Uh, from there, I went to business school and out of business school, I joined a, a small kind of miniature General Electric in the form of Cooper Industries, and they owned a number of different uh, brands. And, and I exercised more financial muscles there. I was part of a team that did a lot of the work on acquisitions and divestitures. Uh, at one point, uh, my division that I was uh, working in was sold. I was sold with it. And that led me to go to Fiskars, which is a consumer semi-durables company. And I was thoroughly enjoying that job. Uh, and a recruiter I used to find a general manager to work in a business I was responsible for, after we successfully found that individual, turned around and, and started recruiting me for Union Pacific. And at the time, I, I really did not know anything about the company. I, we, we used it as a supplier in the businesses that I, I was responsible for at Fiskars. But other than that, I, I really didn't know the know Union Pacific hardly at all. And over the course of months, uh, after a little research, after conversations with uh, Union Pacific employees, leadership, I, I started to truly appreciate what this company is about, how deeply embedded it is in the, in the U.S. economy, how the, the work matters for the, for the communities that we serve. And I also started to really appreciate the employees here and, and the leadership team here. Um, we have very, very high ethical standards, and at the same time, uh, we work uh, as a team, uh, and, and we have a lot of fun doing it. I mean, work is work, but here... There's, there's so much uh, teamwork. There's so much mission. Uh, the values are strong that you could feel that. I could feel that from the outside, and I wanted to be a part of it. Well, railroads are critical to the U.S. economy. Even though we have airplanes and trucks, without railroads, the economy wouldn't function. Rails, as you know, have been an engine of progress for almost 200, for well over 100 years now. But the American railroad industry, almost uh, from the beginning, became a political target. The first independent regulatory agency happened back in the late 1800s called the Interstate Commerce Commission because politicians were saying and some farmers were complaining. Historians have since then come to the conclusion that a lot of the charges against the railroads were not really true. And the amazing thing is, even though in 1869 we could go from one coast to another, you couldn't do it on one single rail line. Uh, we have connecting flights today on airplanes, but uh, still, uh, we back then, you could not make a direct uh, journey from one coast to another. You had to maybe get off in Chicago, offload the freight in Chicago, offload it again in Omaha, and uh, there, there were no direct connections. 
So the industry was hobbled from the beginning, almost from the beginning, by politics. And as you know, in the 1970s, and this is important for people to understand, the industry was a disaster. Bankruptcies, Penn Central, the largest by then, the largest corporate bankruptcy in history, nearly brought the banking system down. But then something was done right, deregulation, especially the Staggers Act, named after a congressman, Harley Staggers, in the early 1980s, gave the industry flexibility, deregulation, and the result has been miraculous. As I mentioned at the beginning, our freight industry is by far the most efficient in the world, a phenomenal success. And by the way, talking about safety, uh, you will have more safety working on a railroad today than, uh, than most industries, including grocery stores. So just one statistic, and then we'll get to uh, how the future looks to you. Between 1981 and 2017, average rail rates fell 46% thanks to the flexibility you were given and the technology that the industry adapted. And just one little other thing for our listeners, there's a difference between track for freight and track for passengers. Uh, sometimes they run both over a same track, but if you want high-speed trains, you cannot run freight over them. So people should understand there is a difference between the two. Now, so let's, uh, let's get to uh, technology. Uh, what types of technologies is the industry deploying? Let's start first with the one that's uh, federally mandated, PTC, System Positive Train Control, uh, supposed to stop a collision. Walk us through that. Yeah, so uh, the positive train control mandate was passed by Congress in, in 2008. Uh, railroads, uh, to varying degrees, had been experimenting with the concept, and the concept being overlaying on top of your existing signal system, your existing railroad, uh, a an additional system that would have the ability to preclude freight trains from colliding. And there's a, there's a number of, of uh, different kind of causal factors, but, but at the guts, it was to try to prevent catastrophic incidents from occurring. There was a catastrophic incident that year in Chatsworth, California, uh, where a passenger train operating on Union Pacific Railroad collided with a Union Pacific freight uh, train. Uh, the, the, the root cause of that, or at least one of them, was that the operator of the passenger equipment uh, was not uh, paying attention to the signal systems governing his movement, their movement, and as a result ran through uh, a red signal and into a block occupied by our train and uh, collided with it head on. And that was kind of the final straw for Congress to, to actually do something and act. And so the mandate, uh, positive tr train control mandate, uh, said that railroads had to create a system and deploy it in an interoperable fashion, which means, you know, a, a BNSF train on Union Pacific operating Norfolk Southern locomotives would have to be able to operate within positive train control. Uh, and that system would, would have to do four things. It would have to stop a train from overspeeding. It would have to stop a train from getting into a uh, unauthorized part of the railroad. It would have to stop a train before it uh, took a switch that took it on a route other than its intended route. <clears throat> but I, I mean, if a switch was thrown in the wrong direction for a train, it would stop a train before it. And it would stop a train before it got into a, into a work zone that it did not have authority to get into. 
By that I mean, when we maintain our railroad, our maintenance teams create work zones and then grant authority to trains to pass through after the team has been uh, secured safely. So that's what positive train control does. And at the time, unlike what what you would have read in uh, articles, journals, papers, uh, there was no off-the-shelf system to do this. It's it's way more complicated than the uh, unirail tram at Disney World. In this case, you have to have a system that's smart enough to know the dynamics of every train type from a 40-car local to a 150-car long-range, long-haul freight train and all the different cars and weights that could be distributed through that train. So I'm incredibly proud of our industry and and my team specifically. In, In 10 years now, call it just over, We've fully designed the system. Uh, We've designed all components. It's actually a a system made up of 27 subsystems. We've secured all of the bandwidth necessary. And now on on our freight locomotives, we've got three high-powered processing units, CPUs, computers, that are redundant. They're constantly running calculations and verifying with each other that they're getting the same answer. Uh, You've got every wayside... uh, whether it's a switch or a signal, anything along the railroad that that could impact positive train control, those are all wired up. They all communicate to the locomotive. The locomotive communicates to a back office system that's very sophisticated. And every four seconds or so, this system is updating every train on the railroad operating within PTC uh, on what its safe operating distance is and telling the crews, uh, hey, you've got plenty of headroom here, don't worry about it, or you're getting close, and, and, and I need you to start taking some action to, to slow down your train, or you're imminently going to get out of the zone that, I, that the system considers safe, and we're going to take the train from you and stop it. And it works. Uh, on Union Pacific, it's been a heavy, heavy lift. $2.9 billion, Stephen, to, to make that real. Uh, but I'm again, it works, and I'm incredibly proud of the team for that lift. So it's called positive train control, and as you said, uh, this sounds like you know Congress got involved, but uh, you are going to be doing it anyway. But the key thing I think for people to remember here is that it's it's uh, the way to do these things is you set a goal, and then let you or the others involved figure out the best way to do it instead of micromanaging from. Washington. That's exactly right, Stephen. That's exactly how it worked. And, and as a result, uh, ingenuity won the day. We've, we now have a bandwidth company shared uh, amongst the railroads. We have a radio company because we had to invent a radio uh, and be able to build it uh, that would handle the kind of traffic we're talking about. Um, and we have uh, set up uh, scores of working teams who can uh, continually monitor and create standards so that interoperability is real, uh, and it's working. Uh, another thing, uh, walk us through precision scheduled railroading (PSR). Yeah, at its it, precision scheduled railroading, which is the model that that we've deployed in a system that we call Unified Plan Twenty Twenty, is really pretty simple. Um, at its guts, it's about 
focusing your attention on movement of every freight car individually, understanding that that's exactly what the customer is is asking us to do, to, to move their freight consistently and reliably. And what they care about is the car, where they gave it to us and where they want it delivered. And so when you focus on that, <clears throat> then another fundamental tenant is don't do more work than you have to. So touch that car only the necessary number of times to move it from where it was delivered to you to where you have to deliver it. Uh, and along that way, uh, make sure that you give that car wherever it is, lots of different options to, to ride and get to the next destination. Uh, and that you, uh, use your assets very wisely in doing that specifically your locomotives, but all your assets. Making it easier for customers to schedule rail service and management shipments. You can do it now from a phone to tell us about that. Yeah, that is super cool. So one part of our transformation, and we were starting down this road even in the in the old design of the network, it, we, we, we think of our relationship with our customer as a journey that the customer is taking with us. And we think of that relationship, Steve, on a continuum all the way from at the front end when a customer thinks, uh, I want to ship this product from here to there. We need to make it very easy to to sign up to be a customer, to get credit, to understand uh, what it means to ship on the railroad, what kind of car you need, what kind of wh where you can get that car, all the way through to when shipment's happening. We want to make sure they have visibility to the shipment. They know a local service is about to happen, so please knock off your derails, open your gates, get ready for the for the local to come into your yard, and all the way to the end where. The, the transaction's done and the bill is uh, proffered and we want it real easy to understand and easy to pay. And if there's any uh, dispute, we want that dispute to be readily and easily uh, uh, kind of remedied, right? Uh, agreed upon. And so everywhere in there, we're applying world-class technology to that experience. So because of positive train control, all of our locomotives are GPS equipped, uh, and we have very good uh, granular information on where every freight car is. And as a result, uh, prior to, let's say, you being industry Forbes, and you're going to get a delivery of three cars, uh, if you're the next on the local to be served, we'll text you and say, hey, Mr. Forbes, uh, your three cars are on their way. We should be there in about 45 minutes. Please make sure your gate's open. Make sure your crew's ready. We look forward to serving you. We do that all along that customer journey, applying different elements of technology. And it's really starting to make a difference in our relationship with our customers. So uh, summarize how have customer demands changed over the years? It's uh, be because, as you noted early, we we are so deeply in inner connected to the U.S. economy and connecting the U.S. economy and the North American economy to the world, uh, we feel directly the shifts and ebbs and flows in global economy. So, for instance, if you go back 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a shale energy revolution. Uh, there had been experimentation with production companies trying to generate 
oil out of tight shale, but you know, the, those experiments were kind of one-offs. And then uh, somebody experimented the right way and found ways to be able to fracture that rock and get the oil out. Lead generated a market for us shipping what's called Northern White Sand, which is from Minnesota and Wisconsin predominantly, down into these shale basins, let's say in Texas, like the Permian Basin. That generated one heck of a big piece of business for us in a relatively short period of time. Uh, And as that business ebbs and flows, we see that reflected in our volumes of shipping frac sand. Uh, The same was true with ethanol. If you go back a little further, 15 or 20 years ago, ethanol was a pretty small industry for very specific use. And uh, then uh, it was determined that ethanol was a good replacement as an oxygen uh, nader for gasoline and uh, more environmentally friendly. So an ethanol market was created and we were the beneficiary by helping get corn to the ethanol producers and get ethanol from the production facilities into the blending facilities. So it's, we feel that all the time every day. And, and one thing that we're feeling right now over the long term is this long-term move in every economy to one that's more services oriented than production oriented. So that changes trade flow from us. That means for us over the long term, imports off the West Coast have been a big growth engine. Uh, It also means um, trucks moving goods, whether they're uh, kind of service oriented goods or or the hard economy uh, have become more and more important. Uh, And what's becoming a little less important over the long run has been uh, basic industry, large, uh, uh, hard industry, old economy industry in the United States. Now, it's still a big part of our business, and we love it when we can get a a manufacturer to put a factory on our railroad somewhere. Uh, But that's happening less and less over time, and it's becoming harder and harder. So we see that directly. Uh, walk us through the, uh, you've touched on it, uh, but uh, the expanding services that uh, were traditionally dominated by trucks. You're, you're, you're always looking for ways to do more th- good things. Amen. We, so we are uh, the environmentally friendly way to move freight in the United States. We're four or five times uh, more carbon efficient and fuel efficient than trucks. Um, and our job then is to create a service product that our customers can see the benefit of and be confident in moving freight off of the highway and onto us. Uh, That's a big part of us moving to this unified plan 2020 and it's working. That service product is showing itself to be uh, as reliable as other modes. And over time, I expect we're going to be able to penetrate other modes, uh, maybe at a higher pace than we have historically. That's the whole idea at least. And, and the way we do that is, is multifaceted, right? We talked a little bit about making sure the customer journey was easy. Uh, the trucking industry ha- uh, is kind of a, a natural default for a number of customers uh, because uh, a lot of times their systems are built uh, around the ease of doing business through truck. Uh, they've got a lot of multiple routes that they can choose from. Um, but we're significantly more cost effective and we can do large scale bulk much more effectively than truck can. 
So what we try to do is become much more truck-like and friendly in how we uh, present ourselves to our customer base. And we're right in the middle of that, and that work's coming along uh, exceedingly well. And then you match that with this consistent, reliable service product that's cost-effective and uh, 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 carbon-friendly, that is uh, much more efficient in carbon utilization. And we got a great story to tell, and we tell it every day to, to all of our customers in an effort to, to help them convert over to us. Right. Well, despite the huge success of deregulation, you're still under the, the agency, the federal agency that uh, oversees your industry is called the Surface Transportation Board. And one would think that uh, having uh, outcomes versus prescriptions, as we discussed with positive train control, set the goal, you'll figure out how to do it. Uh, in recent years, at least until a couple of years ago, uh, the re-regulating sort of resurfaced. Tell us about the battle on crew sizes, two-man locomotives. Yeah, so so let me let me uh, just start at the highest level with some observations on the STB, and then and then I'll get into uh, the detail of. I, I don't want you to get in trouble with them, so. No, that's okay. We, <laughs> I, I won't have a conversation with you that I don't have with them. Uh, the, the, the short answer is you're, you're exactly right. The Surface Transportation Board um, uh, is on the cusp of being fully staffed at this point. Uh, there was recent uh, legislation that changed their staffing from a board of three to a board of five, and they are becoming more active. They have a, a big docket of work in front of them that are uh, that is either driven by their own internal staff or that's driven by requests coming in from customers and industry uh, to see changes in how railroads are regulated. Our feedback to the STB is uh, really focuses probably on three areas. One is uh, it, it, it makes all the sense in the world to do that regulation in a cost-benefit world. That is, let's make sure that we're actually fixing a problem and not just... Uh, responding to somebody's individual concern. The second is being cognizant, being aware that uh, when you layer on multiple regulations uh, targeted at an individual industry, you got to be very, uh, uh, very aware of the unintended stack-on consequence. That is, you could, the STB has a full docket and they could make decisions on three or four different regulatory questions. And if they did each question in a vacuum, they would miss the multiplicative effect that they could have uh, in terms of damaging the railroad's ability to earn a return. And that's the last thing we continue to, to remind the STB about, and that is uh, the Staggers Act that you referenced earlier. Uh, and really the STB and its creation is existing so that railroads have the ability to generate an economic return so that they can reinvest back into the infrastructure so that they are a strong, viable supporter of the U.S. economy, certainly the U.S. industrial and consumption economy and the trade economy. And uh, if we lose sight of that and start thinking that uh, there should be a limit on the ability to generate a return, it starts taking you back into the direction of pre-staggers where the railroads, the railroads were regulated, 
and uh, we had an inability to generate a return. And as a result, we didn't invest in the railroads. And to your point, uh, the infrastructure was in horrible shape and railroads are going bankrupt. So it gets to a larger problem, and that is we can't seem to get anything done anymore in the U.S. Uh, Building a bridge, which would take two years now, is a 10-year project. Crazy. Um, Let's get to the the big elephant, not big elephant, humongous elephant in the room, trade. The headwinds from trade, the trade war. Uh, Been very damaging. Agriculture, you're very involved with that, critical. They've been hit hard. Uh, first, make the case that free trade over the time, over time, has benefited U.S. businesses and the overall economy. Trade is how we make progress. Uh, tr- trade has benefited and continues to benefit the U.S. economy. And today, uh, between Mexico and Canada, uh, they represent uh, the largest trade part we have for manufactured goods for things we actually produce and sell. Um, They represent more than the next 11 countries combined. That would be China inclusive, Europe inclusive. So, but for trade in today's world, uh, we would have 12, 13, 14 million fewer high paying manufacturing jobs in the United States. Say that again. Say that again. That's very important. But but for our trade relationships around the world, we would have 12 or 13 or 14 million fewer high-paying manufacturing jobs in the U.S. It, it's, it's quite real. The other way to think about trade is uh, what we represent something like 4 or 5% of the world's population. We do represent maybe 20% of the world's buying power, maybe a little more. But that means there's a whole lot of buying power and a whole lot of population that's increasing in their buying power outside of the United States. So we need those markets available to us so that we can continue to build economies, grow, uh, and that you know those open markets, I think, have a, another corollary benefit to us, and that is it exposes us and our economy to new and different challenges. We're not the only country in the world that has smart people working on uh, problems and new products. And the more we have exposure to that, the more we have to compete against that, the better our industry is. And the more our market is open to that, the better our industry is. So I, I, I have zero doubt. Uh, I think it's, it's really indisputable that trade has both helped build the U.S. economy and is a critical underpinning of the current U.S. economy. Well, in your own industry, uh, numbers I've seen, at least 42% of rail car loads and intermodal units and more than 35% of annual railroad revenue is contingent upon trade. Yeah, you got that exactly right. So if you, if you look at Union Pacific alone, uh, it's, a, it's a ballpark of about 40% of our business originates or terminates outside the United States. It's amazing. Now, getting to uh, the China trade dispute, and we know each day <laughs> that can be going up or down. And uh, if you made the point, even though you're a free trader, you've made the point that uh, China and others have to play by the rules, the World Trade Organization, and to deal with abuses, theft of intellectual property and the like. But is there a better way to have China behave itself than putting on tariffs? Uh, I'll say it. Tariff is another word for sales tax. And the American consumer and the American business 
businesses pay it ultimately. Yeah, Stephen, there's no doubt that a tariff is a tax and what you tax, you get less of. I think economics 101 uh, teaches us that. But I will also say that uh, President Trump, this administration, effectively called China to the table uh, through the use of tariff. Now, I'm going to tell you that uh, I think it feels to me like we've gone too far in using that tool. It did get China to the negotiating table. They do need to be at the negotiating table. The, uh, we do need to hold China and any other trade partner accountable to living within the spirit of the WTO and not using trade uh, as a mercantilistic weapon. And, and so I, I, I won't argue against the initial use of tariffs to get China to the trading table. I will argue that the, the approach of putting every purchase from China into a 25% tariff uh, is going to be incredibly damaging to our economy over the long run. And the longer those tariffs are in place, it'll be incredibly damaging to our economy. So we, we have to be uh, sensible about how we apply pressure in other ways. And that can be applied through collective effort. I think uh, uh, we need to enroll the support of our other trading partners who hold our same interests um, and, and find other diplomatic ways to keep pressure up. Now, I don't know that we're not doing that. They're just not apparent to me. Um, but I, but I, you know, I, I would say that the longer and the deeper tariffs go and the broader they're applied, the more harm they do to the U S economy. Well put, uh, USMCA, we going to get finally, uh, the house going to allow a vote on that. I certainly hope so. And it certainly looks like it, uh, us trade rep Lighthizer and this administration have done a great job of, uh, dealing straightforward with. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and the concerns that uh, her caucus has with the with the agreement, the USMCA agreement. It is a good agreement. I've I've read at least the high level summaries of each of the chapters, and uh, it has addressed many of the shortcomings of the of the NAFTA agreement. Um, again, I think Representative Lighthizer has done a a great job at. Um, addressing the concerns that Congress is, is feeding to him, the House is feeding to him. And as a result, uh, I think we're rapidly approaching, I would say maybe we're at the point of it's time to vote. It's, it's, it's time to take action. The U.S. economy needs USMCA ratified. We talked earlier about how critically important Canada and Mexico are to the U.S. economy. And uh, so, so we need to, we need to move it. And, and I'm, I'm an optimist. I believe that's going to occur, uh, but I'm also uh, uh, using my voice, uh, which is small, but uh, I'll keep it up to um, to encourage our Congress to to do that work. Finally, next year, Congress will be reauthorizing the Highway Trust Fund. Little background on that: that came into existence, I think, in the 1950s. The U.S. Uh, highway system, fantastic achievement. Motorists would pay gasoline tax. Truckers would pay uh, various taxes. It would go in the trust fund to build and maintain the system. But over the years, it has been raided for all sorts of things. 
and uh, lost sight of its original purpose. Now it's taken in what a spent one hundred forty four billion dollars that they didn't have. They took it out of the general budget. So uh, part of the problem is underpayment by road users, especially truckers. So where does that stand, and how do you avoid having to pay truckers and motorists for uh, what they should have been? Well, they paid, but the the thing got raided. Well, walk us through how how that you how do you, how do you see that unfolding as, as this battle goes forward? Yeah, Steve, you outlined that just perfectly. Um, the the issue right now is uh, there's not enough inflow to support the infrastructure uh, investments that have to happen through the highway trust fund. So, job one from my perspective is uh, adequate, dedicated funding mechanism. Right now, that's the gas tax. The gas tax is proving to be inadequate, and so it either needs to be increased or we need to f- find and replace uh, you know, a vehicle mileage tax, whatever it might be. That's job one, is just the gross need for inflow to equal outflow. Um, job two is, to your point, trucks are not paying their fair share. Uh, most of, not most, I know a number of large trucking companies who also realize and recognize that and are advocates for making sure that the trust fund is funded through um, uh, a mechanism that recognizes their consumption of the road and repairs the road so that their service product can be good. Uh, But that's not done yet. And every time somebody in Congress wants to increase truck size and weight, we constantly remind them that currently trucks aren't paying for their full fair share of consumption of the roads. So let's get that right first. Uh, and then the, the, the third thing is, is the, the point you make, which is, so let's say we get a good long-term funding source and it matches what the infrastructure spending needs are. How do we make sure that you don't divert five years from now because you got somebody perceives there's a higher use of those funds. Um, so all three need to be fixed. And from my call, perspective, call it, call it rating. <laughs> yeah, you, you'll call, you call it rating, <laughs> but, but all, the, the most frustrating part of that whole conversation, Stephen, is all, all of that seems imminently solvable. Th- those are not rocket science problems. And, uh, it, what it takes is for, uh, those issues not to be used as political weapons, one party against another. Uh, we've got the same issue, I think, in immigration, where the path forward is not terribly complex, uh, but it's not being it's not being walked because each party is afraid of the other using it as a weapon, and that's just that's very very frustrating for the American public. I know it's frustrating for me and my company. Lance, thank you very much for being with us. It's very exciting to see an old industry that uh, was the propeller, the motivator, the mover of the great expansion of the United States and indeed the world, how it's rejuvenated itself, and it looks like you're doing it again. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It It was enjoyable. And now, my reads of the week. The first one is a Wall Street Journal editorial called America's Miracle Medicines. The biotech cures keep coming, the Wall Street Journal points out, if politicians don't get in the way. Amazing miracles are in the offing. Good article to read in this time of pessimism. 
The next one is actually a video that you can find on PragerU, that's P-R-A-G-E-R-U.com, stands for Prager University. The title is Public Pensions and Economic Time Bomb. You'll hear from Joshua Rao, professor of finance at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He paints a startling picture of just how broken the public pension systems are in this country and what will happen if we continue to ignore this crisis. Finally, an article entitled The Unwinnable Trade War. Everyone loses in the U.S.-Chinese clash, but especially Americans. It's written by Wei Jian Shan and foreignaffairs.com. That's foreignaffairs, one word, dot com. The article also appears in Foreign Affairs magazine. He makes the point that we need to keep in mind you don't have winners in trade wars. It's just a matter of how much damage is done. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.